Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. It's time for more with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor. Some great questions coming in. Thank you for sending over questions. You don't want to leave me alone with just Mark. It's, I, I need help. So send over your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Mark, did you get a nice break in the last four minutes? No, I've been just sitting here. <laughs> well, you could have gotten up and gotten a drink of I water suppose. or something. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Well, good. Hey, I got to give a shout out to my grandsons too. I was just over there today with my wife uh, watching them. They had to start school and uh, daycare here Thursday. And so we helped out my son and his wife by taking care of them. And I think they might be listening right now. Fantastic. Karen said, so for Jonah and Ezra and Gideon, I love you boys. And I'm so glad that I'm your papa. That's so sweet. I, th- I think, were you, were you watching them this morning? Because I, I called you this morning early and I heard a lot of background noise. Oh, yeah. That's chaos, disaster, and anarchy <laughs> at work there. You know? mm-hmm. All right. Uh, send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Uh, here's a question, Mark. Can a little child who hasn't repented or accepted Christ's gift of salvation choose to sow to please the Spirit instead of the flesh? Does that child get the help of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine okay. here, Bill. Yeah, I figured so, that might be. This is a very difficult thing. We struggle uh, to understand this uh, with very young children all the way from birth, even before birth. Uh, this is why the abortion uh, uh, pro-life movement is so strong because we hold to the idea that uh, these are, are human beings even when they're inside their mom yet. And so... Uh, this is something, though, the church has struggled with. I wish I could say we're all united on this. There's many churches that baptize very young children, mm-hmm. just a week or so old, uh, for this very reason, so that they uh, can have their uh, sin dealt with uh, even before they can understand the gospel. And most of those denominations then will have a confirmation with that child later on, usually in their middle school years or so, when they can understand the gospel better, when they will confirm that baptism that was done for them when they were just a little squirt, and so that they can then follow Christ of their own free decision there and not because someone baptized them when they were a baby. So uh, a child, uh, what God's accountability is for these children, I, I think all the way up to six to eight to 10 years old is is uh, a great question. And I sure wish we could resolve it. But uh, there's uh, no matter what position you take on this bill, there's always questions less th- left that you can't answer real well. Yeah. So. And, and evangelical churches will do a, a baby dedication Right. Uh, and that doesn't mean the kid's going to uh, follow the Lord. And, nope. Nope. and there's no guarantee that the congregation that all stand up and say, yeah, we're in this together, is really going to come alongside that child and really nurture them in the Lord. 
Yeah, that they uh, there still is the need for, and that maybe is what we can agree on, that there has to come a time of conscious decision of that human being to depend on Jesus to forgive their sins. Amen. And so some kids can do that. Man, I've had testimonies of, of students, Bill, uh, three and four years old when they talked with their mom before bedtime or something like that, where they knew they did naughty things and that that made Jesus sad and they wanted to wow. be happy with Jesus. So they asked Jesus to take away that so that they could be happy with him. And they say that I knew what I was doing and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I learned more, of course, as I grew older, but that's when it started. And I I respect that. I don't. I don't think we can uh, get too cynical about that. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark. When people ask me why God commanded that everyone be killed in a place where there was war, and then it says, "Thou shalt not kill in the commandments," I don't know what to say to them. Can you help? Yeah. Well, what will get you started really well is to get it right in the Ten Commandments to start with, because uh, this is something that has been translated, unfortunately, uh, that misleads people, where uh, you uh, you look at the uh, Ten Commandments here, and uh, it says— uh, all right, I'm going to get the exact verse here in Exodus 20. Uh, Exodus 20.13 says, you shall not murder. That word that's used there is the word murder. It is not the using the word kill, okay? Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of evidence in the Scripture that at least we can debate. Not all Christians, again, come off at the same uh, conclusion with this, but especially the two hot-button issues for this that seem to be exceptions to this not killing is in a wartime situation when you are serving in the military that you can take part in this because it's not personal murder taking place. You're acting on behalf of your country and your home. And uh, although there are wonderful Christians who disagree with that, and they are pacifists, and they will not uh, take life even in a wartime situation. But that seems to open the door, at least that we can have the discussion about whether this is legitimate. And then uh, the other one that's a, a, a just a incredibly uh, contentious deb- a debate yet today in the United States, because it has not been fully resolved, has to do with what we call capital punishment. Are there some crimes where it is legitimate for the country or the government to execute the person who has committed these crimes? Usually it has to do with some heinous form of murder or something really awful where the death penalty is considered. And again, though, the church is divided on this. There are really great people that don't think that capital punishment is Christ-like or godly. And boy, we can get into the passages, and it's a real important discussion. And uh, we, we, I think we have to respect one another as we have this discussion and uh, try to figure that out. So uh, the the wartime situation, the way I like to look at this, Bill, is in a wartime situation, you are acting on behalf of your country or your community when you are engaged in war with another party. So, uh, And this is symbolized in many different ways. Uh, for example, 
it's common that uh, that when there are soldiers that are fighting in war, they must be wearing uniforms. And that uniform indicates that they are not acting personally here on some blood vendetta toward the person that they're fighting. But that uniform says they belong to the United States Army or to the British Army mm-hmm. or to the Chinese Army or whatever it is. And they're acting on behalf of their nation here. Uh, this especially was poignant in the American Civil War where you had people who were related. They were cousins or uncles and nephews that were fighting on both sides of the Civil War, and yet they were still trying to kill each other because they were acting on behalf of the Confederacy or the Union in the Civil War. This was not personal at all. If it would have been personal, they would have dropped their guns and hugged and kissed and cried with one another because it wasn't personal at all. So for the friend that you're talking about, I think you need to draw a distinction there to at least to consider that this may be something uh, that is legitimate. Uh, I I already talked about pacifism, that under no circumstances should a Christian partake in killing anyone in a wartime situation. Another theory that's out there is called the just war theory, to say if this is an instance where there are oppressors and people who are trying to murder people and take their possessions in a war situation, it is legitimate to fight back against them. Uh, maybe the best and latest illustration of this was the first Gulf War that took place in the early 90s. Iraq invaded Kuwait. They wanted to take their possessions, their oil in particular, and they killed a lot of people doing it. And the United States and their allies decided this was a just war to throw Iraq back out of Kuwait and to stop that injustice taking place. So many Christians will uh, adopt that kind of attitude to say in certain circumstances, it is justifiable for a Christian to take part in this battle engagement when certain criteria have been met. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Send over your questions, 877-933-2484. Mark, how should we read and understand uh, this passage? I'll read it. It is uh, Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful Lord you, Lord, detest. And and the question was, um, God's love for humans, does he really hate anybody, even the most evil of evildoers? I've always heard, love the sinner, hate the sin. Yeah, yeah, and that's good guidance in general, but you're going to also run into several other passages in the Bible that talks about God hating those who sin. He hates their sin, but he hates them as well, and so you have to be able to do justice to that. Uh, In one sense, God loves the world. He doesn't want to see anyone perish. That's clear in the Scriptures, but there's also a very— clear message of wrath and anger that comes up in God against not just the sin, but against the person who is committing these kinds of sins. And I wish that we could resolve that easily, but we're left with some ambiguity there, Bill, if you can see what I'm saying. So uh, we have to respect both of those teachings in the Scripture. Okay. 
Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We're going to take a break. Lots more time for your questions. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Send your questions over. We'll get them on the air. Be right back. Thanks for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm Carmen LaBurge. If you enjoy what you're listening to here, consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine. Search Mornings with Carmen LaBurge at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit subscribe. So glad to be talking to my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. So glad we're friends, first and foremost. I miss him. He doesn't live in the Twin Cities anymore. He's in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, coming today, uh, right uh, from the station there. You in, bet. In Sioux Falls. KC, K, C, how what is it here? KNWC. I should know that. <laughs> Jeff, yeah. Rupp, the manager. I'm going to get a note from him on Yeah, this. that's going to cost you. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. All right, Mark. Uh, let's see. In Genesis 5, 21 and 22... It says that Enoch was 65 and beget Methuselah, and then Enoch walked with God another 300 years. Mm-hmm. The question is, recently I've heard more than one preacher on the radio say that Enoch didn't walk with God until after his son's birth, oh. but hadn't been walking with God before that. Does the hmm. text really say that Enoch hadn't been walking with God? He knew yeah, enough to name his son prophetically, I always thought Enoch had walked with God even before he had Methuselah. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I don't have heard that before. So uh, I don't see much in the text here to indicate that. Enoch is one of the shining lights in here because it says that Enoch walked with God and and he was not or he was complete for God took him. Uh, He doesn't die in this passage. And this is in the middle of everybody dying in this genealogy. It's a unique uh, genealogy in the Old Testament that when it goes down from the generations from Adam all the way down uh, to uh, Noah and Lamech and Noah, that the the phrase that stands out is it talks about how long they lived and who they begat and everything. And each one of these people, it ends by saying, and he died. So Adam, verse 5, and he died. Uh, Seth uh, then, uh, and he died, verse 8. Uh, Enosh, uh, he died in verse 11. And so uh, this is significant that uh, we've got Enoch here. It says that he was completed. He went to be with God. So presumably he did not die and God took him home. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure about this, that he lived as a sinner. I don't know if it makes any difference, Bill. Because he did, he got two hundred real good or three hundred real good years in. It sounds like <laughs> before God took him. But uh, I also cross-referenced it a little bit, and in Hebrews eleven, I think it's verse five or verse four, and then also in Jude one fourteen, Enoch is mentioned very favorably. You know that he was he was one of the outstanding uh, during this time of the patriarchs. It's called. That's so interesting. All right, Mark, here's another question. I find this one interesting. Uh, I've been reading in the Old Testament and noticed several instances where they describe a man by a phrase. 
one who is urinating against the wall. They're using a different word, but I'm just cleaning it up here. Why would the author use a seemingly vulgar description instead of just calling them men? Yeah, that uh, this is something where, you know, what is vulgar and what is just an expression that everybody would have nodded and go, oh, okay, yeah, he's a guy, you know, he's, when he relieves himself, he does this against a wall. Yeah. Uh, That uh, we have to respect the difference in the ages and the context that we're in and what what the expressions are. I think my best illustration of this, and my wife and I just scratch our heads sometimes, is when we watch a British TV and (laughs) some of the expressions they have are just outrageous and they've even got the footnotes there or you know where we can see what they said and we don't have any idea what they're talking about (laughs) with some of these uh, these expressions that they have so I think we have to just uh, uh, loosen our belt a little bit and relax and not worry about some of these that we would consider to be really vulgar today Uh, but uh, they uh, it wouldn't be be seen that way at all. One of the really uh, uh, important ones, too, in the New Testament is in John chapter 2. Remember when Jesus goes to the wedding party there at Cana, and they've run out of wine, and so Mary comes and talks to Jesus and says to him, she doesn't say much, she just says they've run out of wine. And Jesus responds by saying, woman, what does that have to do with me? And there's a lot of people read that in the 21st century context and say, whoa, sounds like Jesus is kind of mouthing off to his mom. It does, yeah. Woman, you know, sometimes in our context, that is used in a not a favorable kind of a tone, uh, but it doesn't carry that at all in the first century from what we can gather. He is just addressing her, and this is an address with respect, but we, we get off the tracks there in a hurry if we start putting 21st century idioms and expressions onto these biblical passages. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, let's turn now to Psalm chapter 19, verse 13. Okay. Uh, do you have it yet? I got it right here. Would you We're, read it, please? We are just in tune today. Oh, good. Here. Psalm nineteen thirteen. My translation says, And keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Isn't that good? Yeah, now is God holding us back from willful sins? And is is the goal to pursue blamelessness? Yeah, I'd say definitely the yes to the second one. Okay. Again, this uh, word has the idea of completion, that, that will be completed, will be finished, will be, will be perfected, if you want to use that, when we are blameless. And uh, he, the psalmist here, I love this, that he wants uh, the, the Lord to uh, keep him uh, free from presumptuous sins. That, that's an interesting word, too. I wish I had uh, the, a translation of that so I could look at it further. But presumptuousness, a lot of the time, uh, is when we act or we speak and we're not exactly aware of the total context or the, st- the story of what's going on. And so uh, we can act presumptuously or speak presumptuously. So it's like uh, we need God to be uh, to have that uh, red light beeping in our conscience for us when we might be walking right into something that doesn't please him at all and we don't know it. Mm-hmm. 
Mark, do you think we spend more time thinking of ourselves as sinners or people who have been declared righteous? Uh, that's a really a good question. That uh, that's a Bill uh, question. Yeah, and I think we've we've kicked this around a few times, Bill, and it's because there is it's kind of like a teeter totter here thing of a balance where on the one hand, I hope you never forget, and I sure never forget that I have been redeemed from just an awful sinful, corrupted person. And uh, uh, we've had a chance to to uh, acknowledge that because some really horrid B.C. years before Christ and before the gospel. And so that I'm grateful that we never forget that, that we have been uh, we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, sometimes we can lose that if we're not careful and we become self-righteous. But yet I like what you said there, that now uh, we have been forgiven and God has has uh, wiped the slate clean. And so that really is in the past. I was a corrupt sinner, but now I have been saved by grace. I have been justified by God and not trying to justify myself. And I'm in the process of becoming more like Christ. That is who I am uh, today. Uh, this, uh, I think it's it's really good to be able to make that transition. To sometimes people just hang on to these things uh, from their past, and uh, God has dealt with them through Christ and His death on the cross for our sin. But we keep dredging them back up again. And you know there's a malevolent force there that's more than willing to rub his hands together and, and aggravate that within us, to accuse us and to berate us for being such uh, sinners and that. So uh, some of the most tender-hearted, conscientious Christians fall uh, into this trap, if they're not careful, of revisiting things that have been dealt with that we don't need to just keep rehashing over and over. Boy, so it's important that we not only speak truth to ourselves, but also remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Otherwise, we're going to be maybe listening to some of the prodding from the enemy or that yep. malevolent force you talk about. I agree. I think that is maybe the bedrock foundational starting point that so many of us Christians need to pursue is to understand who we are now in Jesus Christ, because the Bible says a ton about that. And if you want to start, if some of you want a great start on that, study what Paul says are the all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ that we have received in Ephesians chapter 1. That'll keep you going for a month if yeah. you just take those verses apart, phrase by phrase. Well, that's so true. I mean, when I think of Jesus in the upper room kind of telling the apostles where he came from, who he was, and where he was going, I thought, now my little amateur psychology in me says, well, that's pretty significant because if you don't know where you've been, it may be hard to know who you are, and if you don't know who you are, it might be hard to know where you're going. Yeah, that's pretty good, Bill. Can I start asking you questions now? That's no, 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 good. you can't. No, that's oh. that's against the rules. You know the rules, Mark. I know. I, I ask the questions, trying. you answer them. So I'm send me your trying. questions over. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We've got time for your question, 877-933-2484. I'll say it again, even slower, 877-933-2484. Send your questions over. I'll be right back with Mark in just a minute. If you feel close to God and you want to feel closer to God and you want to grow in Him, 
you might want to get some encouragement from Susie Larson when you text the word CLOSER to 877-933-2484. You can do that now. We'll be right back. I should also change that to say jump on the bus, jump in on your motorcycle, jump on whatever vehicle you might have to get yourself from point A to point B and on weekends point C. Uh, Mark Muska is my guest. We're talking about Ask the Professor, which is whatever questions you have, Mark and I, well, Mark, will do his very best to answer them. I will uh, be part- You did really well with that last one. Oh, Don't thanks. say that. Thank you. This question comes up, Mark, from time to time. I always think it's worth addressing because... Like I was saying to you at the break, um, sometimes it takes many times of hearing it, but Matthew sixteen nineteen, can we talk about binding and loosing? Yeah. Uh, the context of this is in Matthew 16. This is where the light bulb goes on for Peter here with uh, Jesus uh, initiating a conversation by saying, uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In 1613, and they knock it around a little bit. They say some John the Baptist, others Elijah. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter knocks it out of the park. He actually says something right on the button there. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then it's great what Jesus says to him. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not uh, overcome it, overpower it. And then verse 19, the one you brought up, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned them that not to tell anyone that he said he was the Christ. So this binding and loosing, it seems as though Peter is singled out here. I think we can make a case, though, that the, the apostles in general were given this authority to bind and to loose, where they are going to be the, the uh, carriers of this message, this good news, this gospel, when Jesus is gone. He hasn't really talked about that much yet. That troubles them when he gets to the Last Supper and says, I'm leaving you. They're, they're not happy about that. But he's only going to be around for a limited time, and the apostles are the ones that are commissioned to take the message and They've got the message, the authority of the message to be able to proclaim it so that when people respond to their message, I think that's the best way to understand this, that you bind things on earth. Uh, if there's something that has uh, been, uh, that you have decided someone uh, is indeed uh, responding to the gospel properly, then you can speak with confidence about them belonging to Jesus. And if they don't, then things are loosed on 
in, on earth, they're loosed in heaven as well. This is quite an authority that has been given here now uh, to the apostles. And I have to show respect for the Roman Catholic Church here to say that they, they uh, zero in specifically on Peter here, being the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. And this is uh, one of the foundation passages that they use to say that Peter was the first head of the church after Christ was raised and ascended. And now they talk about him as the first apostle, or sometimes they'll talk about him being the first pope, and this apostolic succession that it succeeded from Peter down through the centuries through these other leaders of the church that had this same kind of authority. Well, there was quite a controversy about this 1,500 years later with the Protestant Reformation, and I really don't want to try to settle that this afternoon with everybody, but it does indicate that these apostles are being given authority, at least Peter is, and I would argue the rest of them as well. They are given the authority to have great power either unleashed or held back on earth and in heaven as well. And uh, honestly, Bill, I don't think they had a clue as far as the, 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 the reach and the extent of this that's given to them at this time. I can just see them sitting there looking at Peter and one another going, uh-huh, 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 and going, uh, anybody know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's talking about. You know what he's talking about? Um, I don't know either. And so uh, it, it's going to take some time before this, the full effect of this is going to sink in. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, here's a, a question from a guy named Ben in Sioux Falls. How about that? He's probably hey, hey, hi, ben. He's probably right outside the door of, this, of the station. Uh, question is, what prophecies have yet to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back? Oh, that's a good one. I agree. We really like to get into this. Uh, before Jesus returns, uh, this is something that, uh, again, we can have so much fun trying to piece this together. It's like an incredibly ornate jigsaw puzzle of trying to put together this predictive prophecy of what's going to be true when Jesus returns. And uh, uh, one school of thought, and I think there's great merit to it, believes in what they will say doctrinally in the imminent return of Christ. You know what imminent means? I used to tease my students that that kid back there in row four, seat three, it's imminent that he's fall asleep. He's <laughs> over there, yeah. his eyes are drooping, and he's nodding <laughs> off, and pretty soon out he goes. Imminent just means it can happen at any time. And I think we have to respect this as far as the imminent return of Christ. It can happen at any time. Jesus makes it clear in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 24 and 25, that no one knows the day or the hour when he will return. And he goes further to say, and I'm going to return at a time you do not expect me to return. And so, you know, history, Bill, we've had some people say, well, you know, on June 4th, 1992, Jesus is going to come back. And I hate to be sarcastic at that point, but I, I, 
I'd cross that one off my calendar and say, yeah. no, nah, he's not coming that day because you think he is. And Jesus says he's coming on a day you don't think he is. And so we have to then be ready at all times for his return. And boy, we could unpack that for a while if you want to sometime on this program, Bill. But that that means that we're doing what we've been given to do. So Jesus catches us doing what he's given us to do when he returns suddenly and without uh, without warning to us yet at the same time so that's one side of it bill that mm-hmm. he can he can return at any time but then on the other side of the coin there are definite prophecies that predict his return. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be a lot of people that leave the faith. There's going to be tremendous deception and delusion among the population of the world. And there's satanic forces that are involved with that. Real specifically, it seems as though uh, it's quite clear that the temple in Jerusalem has been rebuilt. And last time I checked, when I was over there three years ago, it's not been rebuilt. Uh, They've got the Temple Mount there. They know where the temple goes, but that has not been rebuilt. So does that mean that those kind of things have to happen before Jesus returns? You see how these two are on two ends of the teeter-totter here? Oh, yeah. On the one sense, it could be any time. And on the other sense, it seems like there's things that still need to take place. Jesus also says in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed everywhere, and then the end will come. This keeps Wycliffe Bible translators going because they talk (laughs) about thousands of people groups who do not have the Bible in their language. They have not heard the message in their own language, and so we still got work to go there. That gets them going and making incredible commitments to translate the scriptures in some of these far out places out there in the in the wilds where people don't have God's word. So we can point to several of those kind of passages, Bill, that seem to put a, a yabat on that thing about Jesus' return being imminent. Because of that, some theologians like to talk about his return being impending and not imminent. Mm. Where it's coming, and it's coming soon, but there are a few things that do have to take place before he returns. And I can respect that. So this is what keeps theologians writing papers and having conferences and having a great time discussing and debating these kinds of things. Because I don't know about you, I'm excited about his return. So if we can oh, figure too. out some of this stuff, this is good. This is this is fun to have these kinds of discussions. Uh-huh. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Please send your questions over. I know you have one. 877-933-2484. Mark, it seems like we see in Scripture a pattern of Jesus doing incredible ministry, and then he withdraws to spend yes. time and be alone with the Father. Now, I'm trying to time this question correctly as people are maybe driving home from a busy Monday. Maybe yes. they've been working nonstop. They didn't get a chance to eat lunch or go to the bathroom as many times as they wanted to in a day because they were that busy. And maybe the, there's a little bit of workaholism in them. And sure. so all of a sudden they find themselves struggling in relationships or alienating children or spouses, or maybe they're just physically exhausted or or emotionally burned out. How do we navigate our way with work and rest? Oh, that's just, you know, I mean, this, I don't know if we can point to chapter and verse in the Bible that will give us definitive 
kinds of guidance with this. Uh, this is something where we have to uh, th- think strategically and bring wisdom into the discussion to say, there's a lot of factors involved here, Bill. It's great to work hard. And when we do our work for the Lord, hopefully it's with everything within us that, uh, you know, we're supposed to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that sounds like total commitment there to serving him. Yet anybody who's lived long enough realizes if you don't get rest or some kinds of breaks, your effectiveness starts to be lowered. And in fact, you can even start to do damage if you're not careful. And there are needs for things like rest and recreation. I don't think it's any a mystery that that's where the I, the Sabbath idea comes into the Scripture. For crying out loud here, we can say even God rested on the seventh day after he created the heavens and the earth over the first six days. So it, it seems to put a spotlight on this idea that withdrawal and rest and refreshment are part of a a, a way to live. And it's, I define workaholism to say the work is all that matters. And you shove aside family and rest and sanity and everything just to keep on with that. And there's been plenty of uh, Christians and ministries in church history who've taken that and they've absolutely flamed out you know, mm-hmm. because yeah. they just could not maintain it. And so that, that, that to me is workaholism. It's time to step back a little bit and say, what about some of these other priorities in your life? The ministry is great if you're in the ministry, but what about your family? This is one that dogs me constantly, and I think about that if I if I did that correctly as I I I've conducted my years in ministry. And uh, what about this time of retreat and to withdraw? Even Jesus seems to have enjoyed that time of solitude and refreshment and prayer with God. So uh, there's more than one factor in this equation. And far be it from me to tell you what the magic formula is here, but I hope you can talk with people who have wisdom that can help you to bring this kind of uh, even-handedness to your life. Yeah, that itself is wisdom, though. Thank you for that. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We're going to take a short break and then come back We've got time for your questions. So uh, if you think we don't, we do. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. I say that, but if we get 29 questions in the next 10 minutes, then I'm in trouble. (laughs) Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Dr. Mark Muska, who's a retired Bible professor. He was here at the University of Northwestern for about 37 or 38 years. I lost count, and I think he did too. I but can't he, count that high. I know you can't. But he is available right now to take your question and do his very best to answer at 877-933-2484. Mark, oftentimes there's going to be people uh, that are going to say, well, my faith is really the result of my family tradition. I, I sort of believe what my family believes. 
Um, so how do we get involved in that conversation to say, God bless your family for what they believe, but what if it's just not biblical? How do we encourage them to say, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to look at it differently than what your family has taught you or what your family has believed? Yeah, that's really a good question. In fact, I, I was just telling you during the break, my pastor here, uh, Pastor Randy at Sioux Falls, he's just been teaching on this in Mark chapter 7, and the tremendous challenge that tradition can be to a true and vital uh, walk with God and following Jesus. And there's a, uh, there's a real warning there. Uh, tradition can have some real advantages. I thank God that so many people come from a godly Christian family and home but you know the the you ever heard the clever little witty statement bill that says that god doesn't have any grandchildren and so you can have parents who believe and people in your family that have lived wonderful lives depending on jesus to forgive their sin and to help them walk with god but the challenge is there for each one of us. Uh, Jesus didn't give uh, the Pharisees a pass or the religious people a pass in his day. He challenged everybody, not just the sinners and the outcasts. But uh, this is something we are all faced with the question and the decision. It can be a tremendous uh, advantage and a boost to have that kind of family of faith, but it comes down to you as well that you need to make that decision to put your faith and dependence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe the best thing to, to, to illustrate this is uh, I love what uh, the writer of Hebrews gets into. In Hebrews chapter 11, he talks about all of this tradition and legacy of faith throughout all the years with Abraham and Moses and all these Old Testament people, Jacob, Joseph, and so forth. And uh, he comes to the end of this in uh, verses 39 and 40 of Hebrews 11, and he says, all these people, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive that was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And then listen to the challenge that the writer gives to start chapter 12, very famous verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love using a track and field metaphor for this, Bill, where you have a track meet going on, and here we are on the track, and we're running the race with endurance, and we've got Abraham in the stands, and Moses, and David, and the apostles, and all this legacy of faith. And for many of us, we have grandparents, and great-grandparents, and uncles, and aunts, and sisters, and brothers. They're in the stands cheering us on, run the race, but we've got to get on that track and run the race with endurance. There's no free ticks just because your brother might be a priest or your father was a missionary. That's a great start, but it goes farther than that. It's what are you going to believe? What are you going to depend on? Mm-hmm. So uh, let me jump over to Mark 9, 24. Uh, okay. I believe, help my unbelief. 
So, yeah. you know, how do we understand that? And then I think of the first chapter of James where it talks about, you know, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So it sounds like, well, how are you ever going to receive, receive anything from the Lord if you're having any doubt? Uh, but here this guy is saying to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So we got yeah. belief all over the place. Yeah, this is so good. I just love this passage. This comes after Jesus had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and he comes down, and the disciples bring to Jesus this guy uh, that uh, he's he's got a son that is convulsing and falling to the ground and everything, and Jesus asks about this uh, from his father and how long this has been going on. And uh, he describes it for him. And uh, Jesus here is uh, uh, talking with the guy, and uh, Jesus says to him, uh, or, or the man says to Jesus, if you can uh, heal this person. Uh, he says, Jesus replies in verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And that is so real, Bill. I dispute the idea that you have to have some kind of perfect faith in order to follow Christ, that doubts and questions will be a part of your life with Christ for the rest of your life. You're not going to settle at all, that there's so many things. In fact, the older I get, Bill, sometimes the more questions I have about things we've talked about today on this program and things in the scripture. But I do believe it's still has doubts and questions to it. So help me, give me the ability to believe you and to to address that unbelief that is within me. Uh, that's, that's the tussle between uh, 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 putting our faith and trust in Jesus, but yet still having questions. Uh, this was a big deal for me, Bill, because so many students came into my classes and they had questions about the Bible, about Jesus, about the uniqueness of Christianity and that. And I always told them, bring your questions. That's the way that your faith becomes stronger is when you ask those questions and you take steps to resolve them and then to come to faith that is based on an informed faith and not just because your parents believed it or because you've always been told this. You've worked through your questions and now uh, you've either resolved these things or you've made a decision to believe them even with questions remaining so mm -hmm. that that is just such a horrific i think uh, slogan for us help me lord a great prayer help me lord you know i believe but help me in my own belief and when those questions and those doubts come yeah so good mark no when you are a bible teacher and professor and taught students for decades so when it comes to leading others spiritually with wisdom, I believe you can do that. But what about the person listening on the ride home going, I would like to be able to lead other people with wisdom, but I don't really consider myself to be wise. So how do I make that jump? Yeah, you know, that, uh, uh, that, is, a, uh, that is a noble desire. Uh, to speak uh, the wisdom of God. And I would say the first step to that is uh, get yourself hooked up to God's wisdom 
and not just worldly wisdom. Uh, this can be a trap for us, and we want to be so smart and everybody uh, to follow us and that. And uh, let me just read a little bit here from James here in James 3 where he talks about this with wisdom, and maybe this would be guidance for people who seek to be wise. Uh, James 3.13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Mm, Interesting. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And now listen to what he says. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Boy, talk about unbelievable wisdom right there. Yeah, that's so good. So, Mark, I think the students return next week. Uh, Do you feel a little twitchy this time of year? Like, oh, I got to get ready. Oh, wait a minute. I'm retired. Yeah, you know, I'm having trouble remembering what day it is. <laughs> Every day is Saturday when you're retired, you know. So, but yeah, uh, yeah you know, I'm still teaching some courses online. Okay. I still got my hand in a little bit, Bill. But it does that the, when the fall comes, you you can't just uh, forget the, all those years. And I wish these students heading for college, whether it's a, a Christian college or a state college, that you learn all you can during these years and devote yourself to it. It's a, it's a unique time of your life. It's not going to last forever, just a matter of a few years. And take advantage of the opportunity. Learn everything you can while you have the chance. Yeah. Were you a, a good student in, uh, during undergraduate? Pretty good. Oh, good. I became a much better student when I put my faith in the gospel, though, okay. because I really was hungry for God's Word. Yeah. You were able to pursue baseball and academics at the same time. Oh, not much for baseball anymore. That kind of went down the list uh, quite a ways. But boy, it was it was awesome getting Bible classes and reading God's Word. I was like a dry sponge, Bill. I was just yeah. soaking up it all. Well, I feel the same way every day I come in here to work. And I'm, the last 90 minutes just with you has just been so fun. I feel like I've just had a conversation with my friend, which I have, yet other people have been listening. So it's been great. Yeah, and they pay you for that. You know, you're learning. I know the people you listen to, they're so good. They know the scriptures. They've got great things to offer. And you get to get soaked that up every day. I'm kind of jealous. I I agree. Mark, thank you for the time. As always, uh, blessings to your grandkids and uh, hi to Karen. And thank you for uh, doing the show an extra 30 minutes today. You bet, friend. All right. Talk to you next time. Bye. Yep. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. I would say, as always, if you missed any of the show, today was good. So go to the podcast, check it out, and I will look forward to to spending time once again with you tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening uh, to Faith Radio and, and caring about me and my show. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.